You were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville-Glencarbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Then he said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In the word of the Lord. Right on. Thanks, Dom. All right. Super Bowl Sunday. It's red versus red. Taylor's version. Thank you so much for that. I know it was insincere, but I still receive it. You may have meant it as an insult, but I took it as a compliment. That's a little joke. That's a little trick you can play when somebody tries to cut you down. Uh, Yeah, uh, obviously all of you are invested in the game. That's why you're here. Uh, God will show favor on you and favor your team and allow them to be victorious over the other team. Uh, Genesis 3 was last week. That's paradise, temptation, fall, consequences, the promised serpent slayer, banishment, right? And, uh, And a wedding ceremony of sorts. Adam and Eve are married. This week, we get to see the first family in action. We're kind of phasing in and out, aren't we? I don't know what's wrong with this particular microphone, but if it keeps doing this, Sarah, I'll just switch over to the handheld, okay? Perfect. Um, It's probably operator error on my end of things. I'm sure I'm not doing something correct. The first family, uh, this, this is one generation from paradise. We are one generation away from when people were just walking around, hanging out with God. Everything was perfect. Everything was great. And it's amazing how fast life can go off the rails. It is amazing how fast sin can take hold of us and take us to all kinds of places we never, ever, ever thought that we would go. We have in this story the first pair of brothers and one murders the other one. It's, it's un, if you just think about how quickly the good and the very good of creation is unraveling, it is amazing. It's incredible how quickly sin can take over our lives. Deep in the heart of every parent is the desire for their kids to love Jesus and just for one moment, please, for the love of all that is holy, be friends with each other. Just one moment of peace between siblings would be amazing. And some of you are like, that's why I only had one kid, right? Not a problem for our family, yeah? And uh, some of you are like looking kind of with side eyes at your children right now. Hey, I'm just gonna switch, Sarah. This is driving me crazy. Boom, we've switched. Did somebody applaud that? It's a good decision. You can applaud it. Uh, this is a story that's uh, about worship. It's about bitterness. It's about pride. And it's about murder. Remember, like we said at the beginning of this, Genesis has everything. Every kind of crazy event that you can imagine, Genesis has a story about it. You know why? Because it's a story about people becoming people. It's a story about us moving further and further and further away from Eden. Further and further and further away from God. And in chapter 4, we have the formation of the first family. It says in verse 1, The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have had a male child with the Lord's help. Adam was intimate with his wife. The Hebrew word yada means to know. And it's talking about sexual intimacy. And I do want to again say that God's design for sexual intimacy 
is inside of a marriage between one man and one woman. And we can look all over scripture and see all kinds of examples of godly people doing ungodly things. And guess what? Were someone to write the story of my own life, you would see numerous examples of someone who loves God doing ungodly things. Pretty soon I'm just going to grab that one. This is going to happen here. We'll see. Right. We're keeping Sarah Davis on her toes back there. That's close enough. I just won't move as much. That's all I got. That's all I need. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you did that because God wants you to talk to us over here, but actually it opens up this side of the room a little better for me. I'm looking at all y'all. And a mirror, actually, most. <laughs> His design for marriage between one man and one woman, the evidence of other things existing, is only evidence of us distorting what God planned originally. The design of God was never meant to restrain our joy or to limit our freedoms, or to punish us for our desires. The, the desire of God, the plan of God, was that our joy would be full. Unbroken fellowship with him, unbroken friendship with him, to live in the joy of unbreakable love with our creator. Satan's job, because he hates you, is to say to you, but has God really said like, isn't there an excusable reason for you to just do the thing that you want to do? Life is so stressful. My spouse is not generous with me. I'm just going through a hard time. Nobody understands the situation of my life. Nobody understands the circumstances. Nobody understands the past that brought me to this moment. Satan's job is to say, has God really said? That's just bonus information, I guess. It's really kind of funny, the text right here, Eve conceives, gives birth to Cain, and she said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. This, uh, this word Cain, it means smith. Everybody's related to a smith. You know what I mean? Everybody's got a smith in their family tree. In verse 22, we see the name Tubal Cain, who's one of Cain's descendants, who's the first metal worker. He's the first smith, the first blacksmith, the first guy working with metal and forming it for useful purposes is Tubal Cain. And Tubal is a different kind of language, and it's also a word that means smith. So his name is Smith Smith. It's like Tom Thomas, right? <laughs> It's just the same name. I got, uh, this is also a bonus, and I'm sorry to draw you out, Tom, but I was talking with somebody, and they were saying, yeah, like, his name's Tom Thomas, and I said, his middle name is Tommy, and for one second, they believed me, and it was one of the best seconds of my whole life. <laughs> it was Tom Tommy Thomas. That would have been incredible. It's not too late, those of you still having children whose last name is Thomas. Um, anyway, Cain's a play on words because the name Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired. So Eve says, I have, with the Lord's help, I have acquired this acquisition, is kind of like what she's saying. Um, and uh, it's reasonable. Look, in Genesis, there's a lot of stuff that's not said. We're going to talk about some of it this morning. But it's reasonable to believe that Eve could have thought Cain was the promised serpent slayer. Because this is immediately following God saying to her, your seed is going to boot the head of the snake. It's going to bite your heel. The pain of labor is real, right? I mean, I've heard. I've not experienced it, nor do I desire to. But it's very reasonable for her to believe that Cain was the chosen one. That Cain was the guy. He's the one who's going to stomp on the serpent. He's the one who's going to undo the curse. He's the one who's going to reverse it all. It's really important. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, aunt and uncle, Friend of children, it's really important that those of us who have children do not turn them into idols. I'm not trying to claim that Adam and Eve definitely did that, but it is something that is common in our particular community. When you plant a church, one of the things that they talk to you about is taking a trip to the community, looking around, hi Phoebe Jean, boop, and seeing if you can uncover the idols of that community. What are the idols of the community? In other words, what are the things that that community holds precious and dear? And and you, you ask these kinds of questions. Where do people spend time? Where do people spend money? What gives people hope? 
What is never allowed to be challenged, never allowed to be criticized, never allowed to struggle, never allowed to fail? And if you can identify those things, then you can identify for a community where they're putting their hope. Where it is that they're saying their identity lives in that thing. As followers of Jesus, we're to have no idols in our lives. Because all of our hope is supposed to be put in him. And all of our identity is supposed to be derived from him. So we don't put it into other things. But I got to tell you, when Sarah and I came to Edwardsville, Glen Carbon, we drove around and we saw some of the sports complexes and some of the parks. And we were like, yeah, people here really, really, really love their kids. And now she's a teacher and I'm a volunteer assistant wrestling coach. That's definitely going on my LinkedIn page, by the way. <laughs> which I don't actually have, but parents don't like their kids to suffer. They don't like their kids to struggle. None of us want our kids to suffer, but all of us understand that trial and difficulty forms us. It serves us if we allow it. Anyway, that's what the idol is. So Cain acquired, and Abel is actually not able. Are you guys ready for this? The word here, for those of you who've been around long enough for the Ecclesiastes series, Abel's name is Hevel. Hevel means vapor. In Ecclesiastes, when the preacher says, meaningless, meaningless, or like vanity, vanity, or vapor, that's Hevel. It's like Eve is like, the Lord has given me a man and a vapor. And I think Cain must have been a little bit like Dwight Schrute and looked at his little brother and been like, come along, afterthought. I was joking earlier. I was like, I wonder if he was like, you know you're adopted, right? <laughs> because they're brothers. They're brothers. And it says that in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce. He is the one who worked the ground. Abel is the one who was a shepherd, a keeper of sheep. And they come and they bring an offering. Cain runs the family business. Abel's a shepherd. So we have here in verses 3 through 5, the first worship gathering. And I want to say something about worship, that it has a point of origin, which is your heart. It has a direction, which is where that worship not only is going, but where it's taking you. And it has a destination. Ultimately, you will become like whatever you worship. You will become like it, whatever you worship. Everybody is a worshiper. In uh, this uh, worship gathering, we have uh, a lot of information, okay? But also, there's a lot that's left out. Here's what it looks like, verses 3 through 5. Course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. There is so much left out. The only thing that we know for sure is that based on the conflict... Cain and Abel were definitely Southern Baptists. <laughs> Past that, we have to ask questions and just have some kind of guesses. Number one, why bring an offering at all? There's a whole upbringing that we've missed. But we don't have Genesis 4-2, God saying, all right, pay up, suckers. It's time to give me something. But clearly, Adam and Eve knew the greatness of God and would have certainly communicated to their children the reality of God's existence and the magnitude, the absolute massiveness of his glory, what it's like to be in his presence, to be able to describe with firsthand knowledge what it was like to walk with God. And that firsthand knowledge is passed on in some kind of a way that inspires both Cain and Abel to say, let's worship this God. Let's bring him something. Where did they take the offering? We don't know. But they present an offering to the Lord. 
How did they know that it was accepted or rejected? I read one commentator that was like, well, maybe it was like Elijah where Abel's offering was like zapped with lightning and just completely consumed with fire. And then, you know, Cain's like grapes and apples and bananas are just like hanging out, just still sitting there. Why did God accept Abel and his offering and reject Cain and his offering? There's no explicit statement about why God rejected Cain and Cain's offering. Nothing is explicitly stated. We don't get the specific answer. But what we do see is we see one more example of how God treats sinful people. If you're here this morning and you are a sinner, if you're here this morning and you are a sinful person, you should pay attention to how God treats sinful people. Abel's offering is accepted, but Cain's is rejected. So what happens? Cain goes to the Lord and says, what do I need to do? Uh, how can I get right with you? I just want to please you. I want my offerings to be acceptable to you. I want my worship to be satisfying to you. I want to be your guy. Nope, not at all. Cain is furious and he looked despondent. The actual Hebrew language says his face fell. It's like I was, his chin tripped, his face fell. But all of us have had that experience where our face has fallen, where you've been caught in something that you didn't think you were going to be caught in. Uh, I was 16 years old. We had open campus lunch at my school, which meant you could get in your car and just go to lunch. And they just figured everybody will probably come back. It's fine, right? What's the worst that could happen? It's a bunch of teenagers all leaving school at the exact same moment to go to a variety of restaurants around town and then surely to come back for the latter half of the day. And on this one particular day, I was driving and happened to be traveling slightly faster at a more accelerated pace than was recommended, I thought. And it turns out mandated. And so, you know, a civil servant, you know, said, hey, let's have a conversation about this. He was very polite in blaring a siren, flashing lights at me and pulling me over. He walked up to me and talked to me and then ended up giving me a written warning. And I was like, a written warning? And he's like, yeah, basically it just means it's not going on your record. Nothing happens, but you need to slow down. I was like, great. And then I wadded it up and threw it in the trash because I was like, that information is on a need-to-know basis only, and my mother and father do not need to know. Well, we get home that day. I get home. Wrestling practice is over. I have ADD, so that might as well have been something that happened in the, you know, the Bronze Age, for all I know. That is gone from my brain. We sit down to dinner, and my dad says, um, hey, how was your day? I'm like, oh, I was fine, you know, yeah. like typical teenager. It's fine. It's good. How's wrestling practice? It's good. Yeah, it's hard. It's good. Any, uh, anything you want to tell me? That question alone <laughs> has caused more teenage cardiac arrest than any question that has ever been asked by a parent. And immediately the thought goes through your mind, what do they know? And what do they not know? And so you answer honestly. I can say with absolute integrity, there is nothing that I want to tell you. <laughs> nope. Not that I can think of. Anything... Anything interesting happen today that you might want to tell me about? Mm-mm. My dad goes, how was lunch? And I go, oh. And he goes, oh. In a mocking way that a father has a right to do. And then my face fell, right? Because I was busted. That's what happens when you're busted. Your face falls. And what does God do? When Cain gets angry and his face falls and he begins plotting murder. That's a big one, guys. That's a big no-no right there. God goes to him. God goes to sinful people. I'll say it again. This is why we have the value, send the best. Because God has the value, send the best. He sends himself to sinful people. He goes to Cain, and he doesn't go to Cain and say, dude, you got to cut it out, man. He doesn't go to him with accusations. He comes again with questions. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? This, by the way, these verses, verses 6 and 7, are actually a poem, God speaking in poetry, asking questions, providing a solution, 
and vividly analogizing the current situation. Why are you upset? How do you think Cain would have answered that question? Why are you upset? This is also a question that we ask of children after giving them a punishment or a consequence or catching them doing something they're not supposed to do. And we go, why are you upset? Cain doesn't answer. God says, you can still be accepted. You can still be accepted. Just do what is right. How would Cain have responded if we had a record of his response to this? And he says, sin is crouching. Our translations say, at your door. But literally it says, at your tent flap. Which I think is much more vivid. Sin is crouching at your tent flap. Because if you've ever been in a tent to sleep, you wake up and you're like, oh man, I really hope there's no bears out there. But then you're kind of like, but it would be really cool if there was a bear out there. Like if I could live through that and tell that story. It's desire is for you. This is what we don't understand about our sin. This is what we don't understand about our anger. This is what we don't understand about our bitterness. We don't understand that its desire is to consume every piece of us. Its desire is for you. It is looking at you the way that I'm going to be looking at Super Bowl snacks tonight. Just saying, all I want is a bigger stomach. Sin is literally right outside the tent. And it wants to consume you. And God says to him, you must have mastery over it. It wants to dominate you. You must instead dominate it. You can either bend your knee to sin or bend your knee to me. Those are the only options given. And how does Cain respond? He just leaves. God gives another opportunity to say, where is your heart? Where is your worship taking you? It's not too late to change. If you are breathing, it is not too late to change. It's not too late to repent. It's not too late to yield. The problem is there is nothing more delicious to us than anger and bitterness. Nothing tastes better to us. We just fail to recognize we're the ones being tasted. We're the ones being consumed. It's not difficult to imagine what Cain was thinking here. You know why? Because we're all familiar with having a pride-filled heart that gets wounded, that gets rightly wounded. Everybody's related to a smith. And the heart of Cain lives inside of all of us. Pride is probably the most corrosive and destructive thing on the planet. It binds us, because this is what's going on with Cain. Pride. This is what's happening inside of him. It binds us, and then it goes to work. Once, pain, once, once pride has a hold of you, here's, here's the process. Here's what it looks like. Shame and fear take over. So like our first parents, we hide and avoid. Pride and shame. This is, this is something I discovered in a moment of deep shame in my own life. Pride and shame sleep in the same bed. Pride and shame live together. Pride and shame are best friends, and they travel as a pair. Because pride says, I never should have done that. Pride says, nobody should ever have accused me of doing that. Pride says, I'm justified in doing that. And at the same time, shame says, yeah, but you know what's really right. And so rather than deal with it, we go into hiding, just like Adam and Eve. Have you ever dealt with somebody, confronted them about something, and then they attacked you? Guess what? That's just another version of hiding. Confront somebody, and they deflect away from it to some other bigger, more important issue. That's just another way of hiding. Confront someone, and they try to minimize the significance of it. That's just another way of hiding. That's what pride does to us. Shame and fear take over, and we run and we hide. That is the normal human response to sin. 
That's the normal response. We just fail to recognize that's not the last stop on this particular ride. When we do that, by the way, we become what the book of Proverbs calls a fool. A fool. Once isolated. Having rejected the consolation that God offers to us. Once isolated, we are left to soak up the poison of our own wound. We actually have an English idiom that perfectly describes this. When someone is prideful and then gets offended and then goes off by themselves, we say, oh, he's just over there licking his own wounds. If we could for just a moment pause and consider that. To consider that I'm angry, I'm resentful, I'm prideful, I'm bitter, and I am consuming that. Once isolated, we begin to soak up the poison of that wound, and the flavor of that particular stew is extremely bitter. And the bitterness, once internalized, will poison every aspect of your life until you are completely consumed. We're all related to a smith. The heart of Cain lives inside of all of us. So Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, he comes again to a sinner, a murderer. The Lord comes to Cain and he says, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Now, if you can hear this, Cain is a farmer. Abel is a keeper of sheep. And God comes and says, where's your brother? And Cain's heart is so hard and he's so angry that he uses a play on words to dig at his recently murdered brother, who's a keeper of sheep. And Cain says, am I a keeper of Abel's? Am I a shepherd of my brother? Am I a shepherd of that shepherd? I don't know, he says. Then he says, God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground, that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Consumed with bitterness, Cain murders his brother. Look how fast the good and the very good of creation is unraveling. Look how fast sin accelerates. Those of us in the room this morning who are dabbling our toes in sin... Those of us in the room who are nursing old wounds, who are clinging to old hurts, who are holding resentment and bitterness, look at how fast it will unravel your life. Look at how fast it will take the good and the very good and completely undo it. It's a short trip from lusting after God's power to killing your brother. It is a short walk off that plank. If you look at 1 John chapter 3, in 1 John, this is talked about. Verses 10 through 12, and then I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 15 through 21. It'll be on the screens here. John says, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another, unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then chapter 4, starting in verse 15 Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. 
And this love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. Listen, this is good. We love because he first loved us. That's why we love. That's the reason you love anybody. The reason you love anything is because first God loved you. Otherwise, you don't have any conception of what love is. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and his sister. We're created by dust, by God, and breathed in the breath of life from God's own lungs. And God says as a punishment to our sin, you're going to go back to dust. And now again here, we have dust. We have the earth. And God says this thing that breathed out life now, very such a vivid image, that the ground has opened its mouth to swallow your brother's blood. This ground that was supposed to give life is now receiving death. Sin has consequences. And Cain is fired from the family business. Cain's a farmer. Anybody know a farmer? If you know a farmer, you know a farmer. This is what they do. And if you go to them and say, why don't you just do something else? It's like saying to them, why don't you live on Jupiter? And they're like, well, I don't think anybody can live on Jupiter. And I don't know how to get there. And even if I did, I'm a farmer. Farmers farm. It's what they know. It's what they do. It's oftentimes passed on over generations. In fact, if you want to get into farming now, you're either going to inherit it or you're going to have a lot of money that helps you get into it. Have you ever looked at how expensive tractors are? I looked once because when I was in college, we did a float where we had a tractor pull the float. And I was like, if we crash this thing, how much money are we going to cost? And here's what I found out. It's so much money that I'm just going to be broke forever. I'm just, I'm going to have to go wash dishes at the tractor factory. That's my only option. And that's going to be my career. Farmers farm. And what does God say to Cain as a consequence? The ground will never produce for you again. And you're going to be a restless wanderer on the face of the earth. I had this wild, this, this is not at all in the Bible, but I had this wild thought. Sometimes my brain works like this. I was talking to Carrie about this passage this last week. And I was like, I wonder if that's where deserts come from. Like God's like, start walking. And Cain starts restlessly wandering the earth. And then there's the Sahara Desert nothing's going to grow that you can eat. I mean, somebody's going to be like, actually, I don't care. You get what I'm saying? It's not in the Bible. I'm just making it up. It's just like how my brain operates. Sin has consequences. My sin has consequences for my life, for my family, for my church, for my neighborhood. Sin has consequences that will be played out in real time. Those consequences are a gift meant to call you to repentance. Those consequences are a gift to me. Those consequences are a gift to you. If you have to deliver consequences, deliver them with grace. Cain says to God, this is too much to bear. Somebody's going to find me and they're going to kill me. You've heard of the mark of Cain and everybody's like, oh, that means something really bad happened to you. The mark of Cain was a mark of grace. I don't know what God did to Cain to mark him. I assume it's the first tattoo, but something about the mark communicated to anybody who would find him, you better not mess with this dude. By the way, by the way, you know who hates being lied to? Liars. You know who hates being cheated on? Cheaters. You know who hates being bullied? Bullies. You know who's afraid of being murdered? Cain, who literally just murdered somebody. He's like, yeah, I know how awful it is. I don't want anybody to do it to me. 
I'm like the only person who actually knows what it's like. Please don't do it to me. And God says, I'm going to have mercy on you. Everybody has to deal with consequences. Everybody gets consequences. The earth is filled with the glory of God. Our job is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God. The earth is filled with consequences. But not very many people know about grace. Not very many people are offered those consequences with a spirit of gentleness. The pervading attitude and spirit of our culture today in the United States of America is anger. We choose our politicians based on anger. We connect online more about the things that we are angry about than about the things that we love and enjoy. Last year, a new company launched, and it was a dating platform, and their algorithm for dating was based on matching people about things that they hated, not things that they enjoyed. Because hate has a much more intense kind of feeling that bursts out and demands to be served. Whereas love demands you to serve someone else. Cain's punished. He's punished, but it seems to me, based on the text, that he chooses banishment, which is a Cain thing to do. In verse 13, Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. He says, since you're banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is punished and says, the ground is never going to produce for you again. And God, who has now come to Cain pre-murder to try to help him and post-murder to try to help him, is with Cain. And Cain says, I'm going to have to hide from your presence. Maybe the reason that our spiritual lives are so dead and dry and boring is because we are cherishing sin, we are cherishing anger, we're cherishing bitterness, and we're choosing to hide from the presence of the Lord. I'm not saying that that's definitely it, but I'm saying that's definitely been a thing in my life where I say I have to hide from God's presence because if I go into God's presence, I'm going to have to deal with my sin. I'm going to have to deal with my hatred. I'm going to have to deal with my bitterness. I'm going to have to deal with the resentful feelings that I possess. And guess what? There's nothing more delicious to me than those things. Pride will make you a prisoner of your own shame. It makes you a prisoner of your own shame. Pride says, don't tell anybody, don't talk about it, don't deal with it, don't go to God to get consolation, to get forgiveness, to get a renewed joy. Pride says, no, instead, let that shame take possession of you and let that shame pull you away from everybody and everything that you love. Pride makes you a prisoner of your own shame. And guess what? Then what happens next is you get angry. Because it's not fair. That's what pride will say to you. It's not fair. And so you replace that pride, which you know is bad, and in place you put anger. Because it's not fair. And then what happens? You get ashamed. Because you failed. I should have been better. I should have known better. I should have done better. And so once you feel that shame, you isolate because no one else could possibly understand what I've done or what I'm going through. So you isolate. Then you get bitter because nobody cares. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had a conversation with someone who has been like, you know, I got my feelings hurt. And so then I just left the church for like nine months and nobody even called me. Nobody came to visit me. And I'm like, yeah, we thought you died or something. What happened to you? Why didn't you tell us what was happening? Why didn't you tell us you were hurting? Look, I'm going to offend you. Chances are pretty good. I've already offended you today. Come and tell me. Give me the consequence of confrontation that says you offended me because the heart of Cain also lives in me. And I need help just like you need help. 
We isolate. You and I are no different from Adam and Eve. We sin and we run to the bushes. We isolate. And then what happens? We get bitter because nobody cares. Nobody could understand, so I'm just going to be by myself. And now I'm by myself, and all my worst fears are confirmed. Nobody cares. Meanwhile, by the way, pride is taking those thoughts and turning them into definite truths. You go, I'm alone, and nobody's reached out. Obviously, nobody cares. And pride says, that's absolutely right. They don't know how great you are. They don't know how much you're hurting. They don't know what you've done for them. They don't care, which then makes you destructive. You know why? Because they deserve it. That's the pattern, but it doesn't end there. You know what comes after that? Hopeless. Because now there's nothing left that matters and nobody left that cares. That's where Cain ends up. And guess what, guys? It started with a worship service. It started with Cain bringing an offering to God. But the problem went past just the offering and went to the heart of the offerer. We treasure our pain by reliving it. What God wants to do is relieve it. We take it and we soak ourselves in it. But God says there is a better way. If you look over in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 55, it'll be on the screens. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 6 and 7. Come, everyone who's thirsty. This is God talking. Everybody who's thirsty, those of you who are here, if you're thirsty, come to the water. And you, without silver... Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend your silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and you will enjoy the choices of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make a permanent covenant with you on the basis of the faithful kindness, the covenantal love of David. And then verse 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him to our God for he will freely forgive. I'm going to show you a video clip in just a second. But I want to give it a preface. And I want to say that thing that you are holding that is so painful And so, it's a weird word to use, but so precious to you. You are afraid to show it to God. You're even more afraid to give it to God. Because it becomes an identity. It becomes all-consuming. And what God wants more than anything is not to steal it from you, but to help you. Without money, without cost, you don't have to have anything. The Lord is near. He's reaching out. He's calling to you, and he's inviting you into his presence. You can't buy your way in. You can't earn your way in. You can't deserve your way in. You can't be good enough to get your way in. You're invited in as a sinner. You can come in. He wants to help you. All right, watch this. Evan, you can play it. Oh, 
God is not trying to rob you. He's trying to help you. And that thing inside of you that you're counting as so precious, if you hold it, it's going to consume you and it's going to destroy you. I have been there and I know that it's hard. I've put down the ring only to pick it back up, only to put it back down, only to pick it back up. I, I wish, I mean, it would be terrifying, but I wish that we could have a face-to-face -face encounter with God like that about that thing that we're holding. To see him, a friend, give a fraction of a look at his power and to hear him with tenderness say to you and say to me I'm not trying to rob you I'm trying to help you would you bow your head with me and would you take a moment to consider whether or not there's something you're still holding some long ago given wound, some secret and treasured sin that at the same time that you want it, you hate it. And would you just take a moment and listen to God saying, all these long years, you've trusted me and I've been your friend. And I'm asking you to trust me again. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. I'll be available to pray with you over by the tables. We take the Lord's Supper together. Jesus took our sin and he paid the price for our sin. If you're living with that in your heart, you should know you don't have to live that way. And when you take the Lord's Supper this morning as a follower of Jesus, you're reminding yourself, I don't have to live that way. I don't have to hold on to that anymore. Your pride is never going to take you where you want to go. Isolation is never going to take you where you want to go. God this morning is with us. He loves us. He says to us, you don't have to have anything. Just come get me. I'm right here. You can respond encourage you to sit with it for a minute. And if you need help putting it down, let's put it down together. I've been there and I've needed help. You just listen to the Holy Spirit and do what he says.
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's Word together.